Today we're going to talk about John chapter 18. We are nearing the, the climax, the exciting part of John's gospel. Um, I say that because I was thinking, you know, if, if we want to talk about John's gospel like we were talking about maybe an action or just a movie that I could I could humorously see some of the guys being bored and wondering where's all the action. You ever had anybody complain about a movie, they talk too much, wasn't exciting enough? Probably don't maybe ladies aren't as 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 prone to have that. But some guys, if there aren't enough car explosions, aren't really interested in the movie, are they? <laughs> right? That's a little bit of a stereotype. I get that. But but there are movies that they just talk you to death and you just they aren't, you know, you walk away and boy, this could have been a little more exciting. Well, if you're feeling that way about the Gospel of John, I don't know if anybody really is thinking that way about the Gospel. There has been a lot of talking lately, and there's about to be a lot more action. Because Jesus, his time teaching his disciples, which of course was very important, and we, we learned a lot through that. It's super valuable for us, as well as for them. But now things start happening. And as they start happening, we want to take some lessons from what we see here. And what you see here may not seem all that important. This confrontation in the middle of the night between Jesus and his political foes, his, the religious leaders that have not been happy with him for some time now. But there is a lot to learn, even from the one statement that Jesus repeats two times in this story, verses 1 through 11, I am he. So that statement, we want to definitely latch on to that um, as we look in these verses today. But there are some other things I want to point out as we get into it that I think you'll find um, encouraging and instructive as, as we sometimes may see a world that seems to be heading in the wrong direction, out of control, frustrating at times. And yet I want you to notice that in the midst of a turbulent situation, the Lord Jesus is completely calm and completely in control at all times. His disciples have no idea what's going on and don't always make the right choices in this crisis situation, so it seems. But it isn't really a crisis. God is never surprised. You surprised to hear that? <laughs> God is never surprised. Me, on a daily basis, wasn't expecting to see that today. Wasn't expecting that car to slam on its brakes in front of me. Wasn't expecting that light to turn red just as I was about to get there. Wasn't expecting my car to break down. Wasn't expecting the bank app not to work and I couldn't deposit my check. Oh, so many things go wrong. I wasn't expecting to have trouble turning on the TV. Life is so complicated now. If you're not paying attention... We got a new cable, and if you're not paying attention, this message will pop on the screen, and you have like five seconds to hit the OK button, or the whole thing shuts off. Because then, you know, I think you're probably taking a nap, and we're just going to save some resources here and turn that off. Um, that's a real challenge when your elderly mom moves in and doesn't even really know how to fully operate the remote that's new to her. And so adventures, there's a lot that happens in life that's unexpected, but God is never surprised. 
So notice not only is Jesus calm and in control, but he knows what's going to happen before it happens. And I think we can find some assurance in that. Let's get into the details of it. So um, breaking it into four sections here, and to start, as we are all very familiar with this part of the story, Judas betraying Jesus. And then we move ahead to see that um, there's this confrontation Jesus has with these uh, soldiers and officers that have come uh, to seize him in the darkness of night. And then we see uh, how Jesus is protecting his disciples. And as is often the case, Jesus has to restrain Peter a little bit, who um, bold in action and quick to action, sometimes before he even thinks about what he's doing. We see the same Peter who is walking on the water and then found himself drowning, um, how he responds to the situation and how Jesus uh, corrects him. And that might be a lesson for some of us as well. So there's a lot to learn in these 11 short verses here. A couple of things to have in mind as we, as we go through this. First of all, um, I want you to think about how John's account shows that Jesus remained in full control of his fate. There are no accidents in the gospel. There's no tragedy here, because the tragedy is, oh no, that shouldn't have happened. And you could might even argue that, that Jesus didn't deserve to die, being a perfect innocent man, being a loving and, and a speaker of truth, and yet he chose this. This was God's will. But understanding as we go through this, that notice that Jesus is always in control, is always right on script of what he wanted to do. And also, as we go through this, be thinking about this. How does knowing Jesus wasn't a helpless victim? He didn't go to the cross because someone pulled one over on him. So knowing that he wasn't a helpless victim in this situation, how does that inform our faith and our hope? So be thinking about that as we go through these verses. But what I see here, and it may seem like a strange title to you, but here's my, my second title. We have the course, Jesus Words, I Am He, which is a great subtitle for today's lesson. But I'm also going to subtitle this, The Beginning of Redemption's Day. Now that might seem strange to you Westerners. <laughs> Just call this in the middle of the night. Maybe the wee hours of the morning, but certainly before dawn, the beginning of a day. But there's something that's really helpful to understand about Jewish thought. And this also applies to thinking ahead to, to the, the passion and the death of Christ and, and how we celebrate Good Friday through Easter. Is that in Jewish thought, the day begins at sundown, not sunrise. We think of the day starting at 6 a.m., 6.30 a.m., 7 a.m., whenever that sun comes up, or more properly, after we hit snooze two or three times and finally decide to allow the day to begin. <laughs> Some of you remember those days. Um, but in Jewish thought, and this was why we'll see the ladies hurrying to prepare Jesus for burial after the cross because the Sabbath began at sundown. Friday night was the beginning of the Sabbath. 
And so that's why they had to finish the preparations and quickly bury him. We'll see that later on in a few chapters. So understand that the night is the beginning of the Jewish day. So as we get into these events, this is, in the Jewish mind, the same day that Jesus died on the cross. At the very beginning of it, because the sun went down as they had the Passover meal, as Jesus has talked to the disciples, some other things have happened. And they make a journey to a place that many of us are familiar with, the Garden of Gethsemane. But this scene is the beginning of Redemption's day. It's not the day before, the way we would think of it, but we think of it, it makes it all the more exciting, doesn't it? And, and all the more of import. This is really the beginning of the day that Jesus ended by dying on the cross. And this is chapter 18, and John's going to take three chapters to talk about the events of this one day. Remember, remember there used to be a show called 24. It was an entire season of shows that happened within one 24-hour period. There was this guy named Jack Bauer and had a really, really bad day. Hour after hour of crisis and drama and catastrophe. Well, this is the 24 hours that culminates in Jesus being on the cross. So, yeah, we're in the action part of the movie, aren't we? So here we are. And let's take a look at these first three verses and see what is happening here as Redemption's Day began. So, verses 1 through 3. After Jesus said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, and he, is, he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. John doesn't really talk about what happened at the garden. He talks about what happened after the garden. In fact, John doesn't even mention the name of the garden. Um, as he talks about crossing the Kidron Valley, a little bit of movement has happened. They had the Passover meal. They left, and as we know from the other Gospels, they went to the Mount of Olives. And it turns out that this, this name, Gethsemane, has something to do with olives, something to do with olive vines or something like that. So this was probably, I had never made this connection before, but the Garden of Gethsemane was probably on or near the Mount of Olives, probably part of the mountain where some vegetation grew. So they've gone from Jerusalem where they had the Passover meal. They left the city. They went out um, to the Mount of Olives. Uh, Jesus has been having this long discord with them, some of it at the supper, some of it on there, probably walking to the Mount of Olives. There's a lot of the stuff that John recorded. Probably they were walking and talking. Okay? You ever have that quick meeting? Hey, let's walk and talk. I got somewhere to be, but I want to talk to you. Um, or you maybe do that on, we do it on our phones now, right? Walking and talking. Hopefully not running into anything. I know you're worried about those millennials, and they're going <laughs> to fall down the stairs or something. But, you know, people are used to having that phone on their face and looking out the corner of their eye. But they didn't have any technical problems, but they were having this discord, and they've gone to this mountain near Jerusalem, and, that, and they spent some time in the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done, where the disciples got sleepy. That's how we know it's kind of well into the night by this point, uh, although it's still in the darkness, and it's the cover of darkness that Judas is using. Remember, it was at the end, near the end of the Passover meal that Jesus dismisses Judas. 
he goes out and he's gone and he's gathered this mob to come under the cover of night where they don't have to face the crowds where Jesus was popular, you know, as a teacher. Um, maybe some just liked seeing Jesus because he could get away with, with saying things to the Pharisees that other people couldn't get away with. And we know there's been this long, brewing um, disagreement, right, between Jesus and those and those religious leaders, because they just never could tame Jesus. They could never get them to fall in line with their rules and regulations and expectations the way they did things. He was a threat to their power. And Judas had made the offer to them, I can get, I can get Jesus in your hands, in a situation where the crowds won't prevent you, where you won't get stoned to death for taking this popular figure and, and putting him in, in jail. Um, or of course, it had escalated beyond that, as we're going to see that they really, they really fully intended to kill Jesus. But they had some complications. They weren't allowed to kill people. Uh, the Jews were under Roman rule, and the Romans had the authority. The Jews did not have the authority to put someone to death. So there's this whole power structure that we'll work through over the next couple of chapters that they had to work under. So they couldn't kill Jesus on the spot. It wasn't what this was about. It was about apprehending him outside of the public view so that they could put him on trial. Although we might, you know, say, you know, it was, uh, I forget the term, kangaroo court. Is that what it is? It's not a real serious trial. They're not seeking justice. They're just trying to check off a box so that they can, they can pass him on to the Romans and ask for Jesus' execution. But it all begins here. This is the first domino that falls, and it leads to the cross. And it's interesting that they think they're being clever. This mob that goes to capture Jesus is with this company of soldiers. So they have some Roman soldiers with them. They have their officials there. They're there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. All right. Um, this, I don't know why this reminds me of that scene in Beauty and the Beast where the townspeople get all fired up and they're going to go get the beast. So here they are, right? And, and there's this mob going to get Jesus. And they think, aha, we've got him. We're in control now. There's no crowd that Jesus can woo with his amazing words. We're just going to grab him. Judas led him, us right to him. Now, of course, it's the dark. It's hard to see. They need Judas' help making sure they grab the right guy. They don't grab James by mistake, and then, ah, oh, you're just James. You're no good to us. We're going to Jesus. So Judas is there kind of guiding them in this situation. Very familiar story. Um, but here we are. And this crowd seems like, ah, oh, we finally got him. We're, now we're going to win. And everything seems to go their way. But in parallel... What they don't know is they're unwittingly doing exactly what God intended from the beginning. From the beginning, that's exactly what God wanted to do. So they have this illusion of control. As they move in secret, aha, we've got you now, Jesus. Now, John does not record the kiss, but, of course, Judas has somehow identified. John doesn't, doesn't talk about stuff, every little detail. It's never his purpose. His purpose is to show us the story of Jesus. All right? So, yes, there's things that other gospel writers tell us that we don't see here. Don't let that throw you. John's focus is on the story, and he's going to show us some things that the other gospel writers don't tell us in the next couple of verses. But here, Jesus is betrayed. Did Jesus know that Judas was going to betray him? 
He did. He did. How do we know he knew? Aha. Uh -huh. Yes. Let's look at. Let's take some time looking at the other accounts. Not a lot of time. I don't want to get bogged down. But let's go and look at. Um, even in John's gospel, of course, there's accounts in Matthew that are very helpful. And we see some of those other details that we didn't see about the, the meal. But if we go back to John chapter 13, verses I don't know that we studied through ourselves. But in a way of background, here's the account of the Last Supper. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. There's Jesus' foreknowledge. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, who's that talking about? John. John always referred to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. That was always his very humble way of, of, saying, of referring that it wasn't just any disciple. He didn't want to name himself. So he's reclining at the table at Jesus' side, verse 24. So Simon Peter motioned to him. Peter always is doing something, isn't he? Even in our story today. Motion to him, asked Jesus, who are you speaking about? So that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So Jesus knows who's going to betray him. And at this point, Peter and John also know who it's going to be. Then after he'd taken the morsel, notice that Satan enters into Judas. And Jesus says to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. So there's the story out of John chapter 13. That was just a couple hours ago. There's been this long discord as Jesus has talked to them about how he's going to go away. He's the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit's going to come and guide them into truth and remind them of the things he said. And then in John chapter 17, we have that prayer that I hear described as the high priestly prayer that we studied in the last session. And here, well, here we are. What Jesus knew was going to happen has just happened. Jesus saw it coming a mile away. So Jesus, as I said, God is never surprised. Jesus is not surprised here. So understand that. That Jesus remains in control. And we're going to say even more so in the next section. But here we certainly see Jesus not surprised. He said this was going to happen. Jesus not worried about this mob full of torches and weapons. <coughs> now, if a mob like that shows up in my house tonight, I'm going to be a little concerned. I'm going to be a lot surprised, too. All right? You maybe can think of uh, recently in the past year, People, maybe elected or non-elected officials, having protests outside their very home and how that must have felt to have that kind of, of thing going on right here in our country. But Jesus knew that was going to happen. So here we are at the place of the double cross. Judas, thinking he's clever, he's made himself 30 pieces of silver. He's betrayed Jesus. But keep in mind, Jesus is unfazed. He knew Judas was going to do that. He let Judas be in charge of the money despite his greed. Judas, by the way, not in heaven today. The Bible's very clear. The betrayer of Jesus found no forgiveness. You can study those verses on your own. 
Judas, as we'll see him described later, he's uh, the son of destruction. He's fulfilling a role, but he's held guilty for what he's done, betraying. Let me tell you, however clever Judas thought he was, he regretted his choice very soon. And who knows what Judas was thinking. Maybe he thought he was going to force Jesus' hand and make Jesus do something amazing and remarkable. And then Judas could take credit. Yeah, Jesus wasn't going to do anything until I kind of prodded him. And I put him in this situation. And he just did this amazing thing. Maybe Judas thought he was going to take credit. Maybe he thought Jesus was acting too slowly. He hasn't taken charge yet. I'll give him a little kick. And Jesus will, will, will take over and become the Messiah that I always wanted him to be. But unwittingly, Judas ends up on the wrong side of the story here, doesn't he? ends up betraying here in the place that we know as the Garden of Gethsemane. Moving ahead to verses 4 through 6, and here's maybe the most interesting part of the lesson today. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to him, Who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who portrayed him, was also standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Jesus is in control. They've come to seize Jesus, arrest Jesus. And as they call him Jesus of Nazareth, they're happy to be specific. Jesus was a fairly popular name. I mean, it's akin to Joshua today. Think how many Joshes you know at this church even. I mean, I'm certainly Josh, our secretary, and others. Um, think how many Joshes you've met. You know, a very popular name. You have to say more in, in a in my school. You know, in a lot of churches I've been, you'd have to give a last name before I even knew what Josh you were talking about. Uh, I know that maybe more than others because I have a son named Josh, and so you know, uh, there were always other Joshes around. And I don't know if he was always happy to have such a popular name, but then look at me, my name is Scott, and that was really popular back in my day. So the fact is, they had to be specific, but they didn't necessarily use a very flattering address or title for Jesus, did they? Notice there's no talk here about we need Jesus, the king of the Jews, although they use that as a mocking title once they knew he was going to be executed on a cross. Uh, even that was meant entirely as an insult, although I got turned around on them, as you might recall. But here, Jesus of Nazareth, as you might recall, Nazareth didn't necessarily have a great reputation. Okay? It'd be like reminding someone that they're from a town that nobody really is that crazy about. Okay? It'd be like someone trying to make somebody, you know, look bad in a conversation who says something and we don't really think they're an expert. They're like, aren't you just some country boy from, you know, such and such? Aren't you from Hiram? Like, what are you even talking about? Okay? Nothing against Hiram. That's a great city now. But you may, you know. But but picking out a, a place that maybe doesn't exactly sound like you're at, you know, the Georgia Institute of Technology or something like that, you know. Nazareth there, what, what, remember what um, he was, who was it? Was Philip the one? Um, Nathaniel was the one, and Philip the one who went and, and called him and said, Jesus wants to talk to you. And he, he's talking about, about Jesus of Nazareth, because everybody thought he was he was born there. He was raised there. He wasn't born there. Everybody knows he was born in Bethlehem. But he was just this carpenter's son in Nazareth, right? 
And remember what Nathaniel said? He said, from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Okay. So, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't like Smyrna. Everybody loves Smyrna. It's a great city. Nazareth? Uh, not so much. So here, um, I think they mean that it's an insult. He's just some carpenter's son from Nazareth. But we, we need him. He's the one we're looking for. Well, Jesus doesn't back away. Jesus doesn't cower away. Jesus isn't afraid of them. Notice that. And when the most important thing is, and that's why I want to get into verse 6 here, when he says, I am he, this group that came in kind of aggressive, remember, they've got the weapons and the torches. They fall back. They literally fall back. They step back and get knocked over by what? Just because Jesus said, I am he, was it just the tone in his voice? I don't think so. I think Jesus spoke with the power. It's the same power they couldn't contend with out in public. That oh, There's no crowd for Jesus to wow. We don't need to be afraid of his words. Well, how about when he speaks and he literally knocks you off your feet? Jesus was not powerless. Jesus, is, you might say, was weaponless. You might say he's out in the open with only 11 disciples and vulnerable, one might think. But he wasn't, was he? Because he still has his word. And in fact, you look in the book of Revelation, his word, the words of his mouth are compared to a sword. Because in fact, there is no more powerful weapon in all of the universe than the word of God. And Jesus is the word of God embodied. Jesus is literally the word of the Father. And he says, I am he. And hardly ever were a more powerful three words spoken. And they back up like some kind of bomb had gone off. And they fall back and literally fall to the ground. Jesus was in control here, not the chief priests, not the religious leaders that opposed him. And understand that if Jesus didn't want to be captured that night, they would have gone away empty-handed. As we see here, Jesus is in control, and the only reason that he goes to the cross is because he chooses to go to the cross because he loves us, not because anyone had power over him. That's not the case at all. He identifies himself, and he's ready to be taken, but it's on his terms, not theirs. Don't think for a minute that this world ever has its upper hand on God, because God can send them to the ground with a short sentence anytime he wants to. Don't be afraid of your enemies if they're the enemies of God. As I recall, things turn out pretty good in the final chapter. Wouldn't you agree? At the end of the day, when God says enough is enough, all this world's foolishness is over with. It's done. Close the book. And it's that case here. Jesus is always in control. Even when we feel out of control, even as disciples were panicked, as they're surrounded by soldiers with weapons and torches, Judas knew where to find them. But notice Jesus wasn't hiding. Does that remind you of Daniel when he continued to pray after the law was passed? Kept his window open. Don't be ashamed to do what you know is right in the sight of God. Trust God with the consequences of that because God is in control, not the angry mob. And that's what we see here. The angry mob shows up. 
And Jesus goes out to meet them. Does that remind you? Remember the story of David and Goliath? What did David do when he saw the giant? Did he take up a defensive position behind a rock and cower in fear? That's not the story I remember. Didn't David go running to meet the giant in the middle of the battlefield? Because he knew the battle was the Lord's no matter how big the giant was? Well, how big is Jesus when he's in your corner? Don't cower in fear because the world has gone crazy. Because they've turned their back on values that perhaps used to be more common in our society. Don't be ashamed of what you believe. Be gentle. Be loving. But be firm and be bold. If God's on our side, we've got nothing to be ashamed about. We need to make sure that we're being kind and we're being truthful and we're being loving. But we don't need to be ashamed of what we believe. Because we've got Jesus on our side. And Jesus is in control. And Jesus is not ashamed of who he is. Neither should we. So we see here Jesus knocking them back on their feet. What you might think is his weakest moment. He's as strong as ever, isn't he? Take a look at this. I thought this was interesting. Uh, as the writer of Hebrews, might have been the Apostle Paul. I'm not smart enough to know. Some people think it was. Some people think it wasn't. Maybe Paul didn't sign his name because he wasn't real popular with some of the Jews as he had become the preacher of the Gentiles. But regardless, the point of the book of Hebrews is how Jesus is superior to everything we had before him, that we needed Jesus as our Savior. And the opening of the book, notice this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Is that what we see in this story? Jesus' words are so powerful that he helped create the entire universe. It's nothing for him to send a couple of silly Soldiers with torches and swords flying backwards. That's who they're trying to resist. Don't be afraid for Jesus and the disciples. Be afraid for the soldiers. They're on the wrong side. You better be afraid of my Jesus. You don't want to meet him with your sins unforgiven, do you? Because of the word of his power. He's at the right hand of the majesty on high because he won this whole confrontation after he went to the cross and rose again. That's my Jesus. I don't need to cower in fear. I'm on his side. As superior to the angels, the name he has inherited is more superior than theirs. That's who we worship. And whether the world recognizes it or not, they will one day bow to him. But notice the word of his power. That's the same Jesus here in the garden. He's unafraid. And when we're afraid, I think we're looking at our resources. I don't know about you, but um, my karate classes are way behind me. And in hand-to-hand -hand combat, I expect I would go down to some trained soldiers, especially caught off guard in the middle of the night. Okay? I, don't even, I can't hardly even win a basketball game, much less something more important like this, right? 
But when we look at our resources, we got reasons to be afraid. Are you depending on your resources? Are you depending on Jesus to protect you? We'll get to that in just a minute. One more thing. Let's let's highlight a few things coming up in chapter 19 and go back to chapter 10 as well as we look at how Jesus has full authority over every situation and how we can trust him to remain in control even when things are unexpected to us. Later on in chapter 19, I don't think we're going to actually study this verse as one of our focus verses, so I want to bring this in here. He has this discussion with Pilate, who's the Roman governor. And in that discussion, Pilate's is a little frustrated because Jesus will not defend himself against the charges that these religious leaders are going to bring against him. And so he says, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Pilate thought he was in control. But that never for a second has Jesus not been in control of the story. All the way to the cross, he remains in control. And notice what Jesus says to him. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Understand that everything that this world does, everything that Satan does, is only if God gives him permission to do it. Do you remember the story of Job? What had to happen before Satan was allowed to torture Job and kill his children and cover his body with sores? He had to get permission from who? From God. From God. God is always in control. Anything that enters our life, God has allowed it to happen for various reasons. Sometimes as a punishment to get our attention. Sometimes as a test of our faith. But anything that happens, God allows it for a reason. And that's what we see going on here. Jesus was never a victim. Don't ever entertain any foolishness that Jesus was a victim when he went to the cross. Jesus did what he chose to do, and nobody made him do anything he didn't want to do. Everything that happened to Jesus, he did it for the glory of the Father and for our salvation. And we see that here. And a little warning here at the end. He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. That's, that's not good news for Jesus. Judas is accountable for, what, for handing over Jesus, even though God allowed it to happen. Bad decision, Judas. As we go back to chapter 10, let me remind you, and one thing I still need to say about I am he, that statement that we'll again see in the next couple of verses. Have we ever heard Jesus say, I am before? Like seven times maybe? And this isn't usually counted as what I am he is not by itself that much of a statement, although it's an identification of, you know, I'm Jesus, I'm the Son of God. But I am... What are some things Jesus has already said in the Gospel of John? I am what? The bread of life. Anybody think of another one? Living water. The living water. Very good. There's two. Light of the world. Light of the world. That's a good one. He's the light of the world. What else is he? Getting tougher now. <laughs> Huh? The way, the truth, and the life. Now, to help us out, and even help me out, because I'm not sure I remember all seven of them. There's actually two of them in John chapter 10. Resurrection and the 
There's the fifth one that I was having a little trouble with. But that's the story of Lazarus, which is really important, right? Because that's when the, re 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 the religious leaders the, 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 got really upset with Jesus. And that was kind of the last straw, right? They're like pulling their hair out. What are we going to do with this guy? He's like raising people from the dead and the crowds love him. And that, after that discussion is when they said they need to kill Jesus, right? So they've had kind of a death warrant out for Jesus since then. I'm not sure what their thinking was. What they were, if, they, if he can raise people from the dead, are you really going to be able to kill him? But all logic aside, they were upset and angry and ready to kill him over that. But two more things that Jesus said. I am the... We got the living water. In John chapter 10, it says, I'm the good shepherd. And he says, I'm the gate for the sheep. And going back to John chapter 10, I want to point this out to you that we studied before. In verse 17, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. When Jesus went to the cross, it was an intentional act of love to purchase redemption for every believer. It was never an accident, nor a tragedy, nor an unfortunate incident. When Jesus is arrested and unjustly tried and sent to a Roman crucifixion, Jesus knew, and it was always his purpose from the very beginning, to die for your sins. And that is a very important point that we learn in this story at the very beginning of Redemption's Day, that Jesus, the reason he's praying in the garden, is he's ready for it to happen. And nobody can make him go to the cross. Jesus chose to go to the cross because he loved you that much. So we see here in verse 4 through 6, Jesus in total control, we see the power of the divine one, the one who, as the Word of God, created everything we see and have in our universe. No one's making him go to the cross. He's choosing to go to the cross, and he remains in control of the situation. And not only is Jesus in under no danger here of anything happening he doesn't want to happen, but he also is keeping his disciples safe. And we're going to see despite themselves. And I hope this will be an encouragement. It's one thing to say, well, Jesus is totally safe and no one can do anything to Jesus and Jesus can send people tumbling backwards at a word. That doesn't necessarily help you when you're walking down the dark streets of Smyrna at night. If the street lights out, you might be getting a little nervous in some places because we live in a real world full of occasional danger, occasional crime. Um, you might be afraid of what's going to happen, and you know, someone might lose a job for saying the wrong thing at work, or, or family gets mad at you, and different things can happen. But notice that Jesus can protect us from danger as we get into verse 7. That's then, why that song, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. Keep your focus on him, uh, because he is the one who can help us mm -hmm. and protect us. So let's look at what happens here. This question is repeated. Jesus is asking the question. Did you notice that? 
Even in the conversation, Jesus is in charge. Then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you, I am he. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said. I have not lost one of you. I have not lost one of those you have given me. Let me say that more carefully. I have not lost one of those you have given me. Here talking about God who has given the disciples to Jesus. Obviously there's one exception there. That Judas is lost, the betrayer. But that is very clear if you go back to what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a fulfillment, not of an Old Testament scripture, but of something Jesus said just a chapter earlier. As we look back in John chapter 17, let's take a look at verse 12. This is the prayer from chapter 17 that we studied last week. And notice what Jesus said in his prayer. Praying to the Father, he says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. Jesus, it was not his job to protect Judas. Judas was allowed. And, I, you know, as, as we think of, at this moment, the recent passing of beloved pastor Charles Stanley, one thing I remember him saying is that this, the most frightful thing that can ever happen to a person is for God to set you loose and let you do what you want. Because our way just doesn't end up very well, does it? When we're disobedient to God and we suffer the consequences of sin, that's a terrible thing. The worst thing God can do is to just stop even trying to turn you around and let you go your own way. Judas got to do exactly what he wanted to. He followed the path of greed until he betrayed the very Son of God that could have forgiven him. And he was left to go down that path. But the other 11 disciples have been, are going to be protected. And notice Jesus is claiming their protection while there's still a mob of soldiers surrounding them. Okay, that's some confidence. Okay. That's even more confidence than saying, well, we're going to win this game and we're down like three touchdowns in the fourth quarter. Like That would be an amazing statement if it came true. So Jesus is making this statement. Not one of them are lost while they're surrounded by an armed mob. But Jesus knows that he's going to protect them. There's no doubt about that. No one can touch anyone that Jesus is protecting. And I think it goes beyond just the 11 people who were there that night. I think it goes to us as believers. Now, believers have died for their faith. We know Stephen was a martyr. But sometimes God chooses to use the death of one of his saints as a witness, as a testimony. But you know what? I know where Stephen is today. The same Stephen who died in Acts chapter 7, I think it was, is sitting in heaven today with God. So even if God chooses to allow us to suffer in this life, we have eternal security in the life to come if we belong to him. So we, even if, in this case, the disciples are not going to suffer harm that night, <coughs> but if we study this, these 11 men, a lot of them died for their faith eventually. 
but it was the time of God's choosing and for God's purpose, not because some angry mob took control. God remains in control throughout the whole story. Look at this in going back once again. Remember, he's the good shepherd. What does the shepherd do? He protects his sheep, doesn't he? Are you his sheep? Do sheep have to be strong and have like ninja moves and be able to fight off, you know, wolves by kicking them with their short little stubby legs? Is that how they work? Or does the shepherd protect the sheep and drive them off with his staff? You know, some days I feel weak and helpless. I don't have to be in control, though, because I know who is. I have a good shepherd. Look at what he said here. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you are in the Father's hand, there ain't nothing the devil can do about it. You're his, and no one can snatch you out of God's hand. Jesus has you in his protective care. And even if we reach a day when this physical life ends due to sickness, due to some terrible car accident, due to cancer, due to whatever, and our physical life reaches its inevitable end, we're still going to be with Jesus forever. So understand that you are secure in the hand of the Father. And let that give you boldness and purpose in the days that remain to us, which for all of us are numbered. We don't know what that number is. It could be days. It could be years. It could be decades. But let it embolden you to serve the Lord and the shepherd who is protecting you every step of the way. Whatever we face, hopefully not an angry mob with swords and torches, but you just never know these days. Jesus protecting his disciples. And you're going to see here as we wrap up the story that one of the disciples is not making this very easy. His name is Peter. And so Jesus says this. Before Peter goes and does something, that seems to be like a pretty good description of half the gospel message. Peter went and did something. He walked on the water. He, he, he babbled about, oh, let's make a tabernacle for Moses and Elijah because he didn't know what else to say. Peter was always doing something. He was the impulsive one. And uh, if that's your personality, well, there's hope for you too because God used Peter mightily. <laughs> to spread the message of the gospel. But let's go on to that. We see the place of the double cross, the power of the divine one, the protection of the disciples. Jesus was not only in control of himself, but his crew was safe. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. After that, Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Well, first of all, I would like to speculate that Peter was not a good aim. I'm pretty sure Peter didn't come, I'm going to cut your ear off. I'm pretty sure that's not what he meant to do. He's probably aiming for the head or maybe even the chest. And, well, Peter was not a swordsman. He was a fisherman, huh? And he ended up 
is hitting the year. The sortie was not a great move, antagonizing the group of armed soldiers and officials who had come to capture them. Jesus had just kind of told them to leave the disciples alone, and then Peter has to do this, right? So at this point, I mean, you would think that, that you know, Peter for sure is going to get arrested too. Like, how's Jesus going to talk his way out of this one? Um, you know, at some point, you know, uh, it probably doesn't matter who someone's lawyer is. Someone has, you know, a DUI and something terrible happens and they, they hit somebody. That's And it's clearly their fault. There's, there's no, they might as well just go ahead and negotiate with the, the DA at that point, right? Well, Peter, this was not a good move. Jesus had just kind of negotiated from, a, from total control, the safety of the disciples. And then Peter does this. Now, you may not, you may remember there's other parts of the story that John doesn't talk about. But I will say John's the only one who mentions the servant's name. And there's a reason for that. John's gospel was written last out of the four gospels. And so we think that John's gospel was written after Peter died. And so John felt safe giving details about what Peter has done because no one could come and arrest him. He had already given his life for the gospel. So John gives us some details we didn't know. By the way, what happened to the servant's ear? You remember from some of the other accounts? You guys are going to tell Jesus healed it. Well, that probably, you know, so, ah, we're going to get him. Oh, his ear's healed. So that kind of took the, the gusto out of, out of the wind out of their sails, right? That's probably part of why they, they agreed with Jesus and did not arrest Peter. But it wasn't helping his cause. But the most important thing as we wrap up, look at verse 11. It wasn't about, Jesus wasn't there to fight up sword battle, would he? You ever find yourself fighting the wrong battle? I think I do that sometimes. We're trying to fight the wrong battle in the wrong way. Jesus was prepared to go to the cross. Like, we're doing this, Peter. It's not the last, it's not the first time Peter had said, No, Lord, you're not doing that. And Jesus had to rebuke him. Remember one time Jesus even said, Get behind me, Satan. Your ways are not God's ways. Sometimes you just need to let Jesus be in charge and do what he wants to do and trust him to protect you through it. Instead of trying to fight against what God's doing in your life. Maybe go along with it. Let me show you this other account. I think I have this from Luke. In Peter's defense, Jesus did tell them to bring a sword that night. Because he was letting them know they were going to be criminals. He was going to be arrested and they were going to be treated as fugitives, as, as uh, enemies of the state. And you'll see here in Luke 22, um, 36, let one who has a money bag take it. Likewise, a knapsack, and let one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. He's telling me, it's a different situation when I send you out two by two to preach to the towns. You're now an enemy of the state, and go ahead and bring uh, some money and a sword. So in Peter's defense, and they had two swords, he's there in verse 38, and he said that's enough. So he did tell them to be armed. So let's cut Peter a break. He's in a tense situation, and, and he has a sword. And Peter is not one to hold back. But he did making the situation trickier, didn't he? Other thing I will mention to you, if we look quickly in Matthew 26, um, going to another account of this, this is the account where um, Jesus, two things to point out. First of all, he says, 
could not I appeal to my father in verse 53, and he at once sent me more than 12 legions of angels. And by the way, a Roman legion had like four or 5,000 troops, so that's a lot of angels. Okay, that's thousands and thousands of angels, and as many as 60,000 angels. So did Jesus really need a fisherman to pull out his sword? Look, fishermen, and I'm talking to you. Sometimes we just need to pray instead of trying to pull out our sword. Jesus doesn't need our swordsmanship. He needs our obedience. Just follow him and trust him. He needs us to trust him and to obey his plan. All right. Um, Jesus was prepared for his death. That's the point. Peter, put your sword away. We're doing this. I'm going to that cross and I'm going to complete the mission. So that is what we'll wrap up with today. So I hope as we see this, see who Jesus is in this story. Even though he's betrayed, he has the power. He's in full control. He protects us and we're securing him. And he was prepared. Yeah, it was no accident. Our job is not to attack others or win physical combat. There is a time for soldiers to fight for their country. But when it comes to the gospel, it's not about that. We serve Jesus as spiritual soldiers by knowing, trusting, and obeying God's instructions. And do so in full confidence. You're under the care of the Good Shepherd. I hope that's an encouraging thought for you today. Next two sessions will be in John chapter 18 further on and John chapter 19 as we get to the end of Redemption's Day and Jesus arrives at the cross. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for always being in control. We don't pray to some weak, powerless victim. We pray to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Good Shepherd is always able and faithful to protect us and to lead us in the way that is good and right. I got a fear of China. Provide for us. You provide for us, Lord. And we thank you for that. And we pray that we understand that you are the I am in every situation, however unexpected and however scary. You are our Savior. Let us represent you well and with boldness and confidence everywhere we go, that we may exalt you because truly you are the Son of God. Let's worship you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. I have a third title for you for the shepherd. What's that? Full disclosure. I like that.